As a Vox article from 2016 noted, LaCroix's marketing highlights its fashionable users, who make it clear that it's popular to both drink LaCroix and talk about it. And so more fashionable people talk about and Instagram their cans of LaCroix, and more people find out about it, and the cycle continues. This isn't a fact, but it's true all the same. New England is a holdout against LaCroix's viral hegemony because affection for Polar Seltzer, whose logo is painted on the side of delivery trucks parked outside Packies and Alston and corner stores in New Haven, runs deep. It's as much a part of the local cuisine as Tasty Cakes or Golden Flake or It's It's. It's cores before Burt Reynolds could get it east of the Mississippi and Smokey and the Bandit, something displaced Bostonians seek out when they've moved to a place where people pronounce their R's. You can find other brands in area supermarkets, but the overgrown seltzer displays here feature half-racks of Polar. For commuters on I-290, Orson, the inflatable polar bear that sits on the roof of the company's Worcester factory, is as recognizable a western Massachusetts landmark as the spherical basketball Hall of Fame building in Springfield. But peak seltzer, with all the pressure of carbonation about to burst beneath a bottle cap, forced polar to expand, pushing its products into 40 states, pretty much everywhere except the west coast. More than that, it has caught up to, and in some ways surpassed, LaCroix's predilection for odd flavors with oddball varieties like vanilla pear and Georgia peach. Encouraged by listicles and local publications and drink menus at restaurants that have made use of their growing list of flavors, Polar has gone all in, first with seasonals like watermelon margarita and eggnog, and more recently with even more naked bids for viral currency. Polar treats its small batch flavors like a television studio guarding the plot of a season finale, keeping them from the bulk of its staff until the cans make their debut on store shelves. The flavors range from the relatively obvious, an Irish coffee flavor released on St. Patrick's Day, to the willfully mysterious. Lisbeth Crowley, Polar's brand activation manager, told me that its Unicorn Kisses flavor tasted like hopes and dreams. In the days after a new flavor's release, the company's social media accounts begin retweeting hardcore Polar drinkers, filling their shopping carts with nothing but liters of seltzer which led to furious threads on Boston Reddit telling stories of finding the last liter of a sold-out flavor tucked in the back of a shelf in a Shaw's and Eastie. The viral culture responsible for the seltzer surge is physically borderless, but Polar, despite its recent meme-chasing, never manages to lose its sense of specificity or New Englandness. While LaCroix's aspiring Instagram models use seltzer as a component of a Hollywood story, a blank screen for its drinker's Dream Factory self-projections, Polar's feel-good moment hashtags tend to lead to shots of BU undergrads posing in a star market. The bar pairings and flight menus still happen within walking distance from a tea stop. And Polar's dorky affectations are so blatant that they don't seem like affectations at all. They're weirdly personal. Crowley told me that the company uses social media to take information from its customers rather than dictate a view of the product from the top down, which she said helps Polar approximate what she called its local connection on a national scale. What I think this means, translated from marketing speak, kind of makes sense. Polar's online aesthetic isn't determined by its most fashionable users, but by its most enthusiastic ones. This means that while people are interacting with LaCroix seem to be doing so based on an outward-facing projection of themselves, their photos were hashtagged to reach into some dim view of nebulous celebrity. Polar's followers seemed like co-workers or cousins, or that guy down the hall, exchanging shots of cold, rocky beaches with the company like a friend. While it's obvious what the company gains from these interactions, it's a bit tougher to see what the real benefit is for the consumer. Why would anyone want to have a conversation with a product in the first place, if your goal doesn't involve extending the conversation into some idea of a personal brand? Maybe because when you speak into a void, it's rare to hear anything back.
I stayed at my mother's house for a few days after her death, and occurrences that spiritualists might classify as phenomena kept happening, often enough that my family and I began to talk about them to diffuse their eeriness. Securely hung pictures fell from the walls, doors slammed shut in empty rooms without drafts, and a bell that my mom had hung from a hallway ceiling, a folk superstition meant to alert the living to the presence of passing spirits, spontaneously dropped on my wife's head. Of course, there are logical explanations for every one of these events, but it's like the joke about how many Vietnam vets it takes to change a light bulb. You don't know. You weren't there, man. At some point in the following weeks, my family and I also realized that her last online interactions, which all occurred within an hour or so of each other, were curt and rife with nonsense, misspellings, and grammatical errors, all of which were pretty out of character for someone who did the Saturday Times crossword in pen. A reply to an involved email from my niece simply read,